This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. This week, editor Oliver Condy travelled to Bath to meet the world-renowned harpsichordist, fresh from a superb recital with recorder player Mikola Petri at the Bath Barkfest back in February. Wandering through Bath's Georgian Centre, past the Royal Crescent and around its parks, Mahan shared his musical passions and discoveries with us. His new album on Hyperion is called Musique and features the music of Henry Cowell, Gavin Bryars, Kaya Sariaho and more and is out in July. This podcast was recorded before the coronavirus lockdown. You've just given a recital with a wonderful uh, Michaela Petri. Yes. Uh, performing Bach and some Dutch music. Bach, she played some Jakob van Eyck and I played some more Bach. That's for the Bach fest, you know, so... And using your own harpsichord. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, using my harpsichord, which I've recorded quite a f- few things with. I did Bach Toccatas with it. I, my next album, which is all electronics and contemporary music. Um, yeah, it's an instrument that I designed with the builder, Yuka Olikos in Prague, and um, uses carbon fiber. And it's big, and it's loud, and it's brassy, and it's just... It it's loud. just a, It's just, we call it the Queen Mary. Yeah. Yeah. What? Because it's just a massive cruise ship. It's like the ship. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can hear, sitting right at the back of the hall, you can hear every single line. And actually, in a harpsichord concert, with or without recorder, you can't necessarily hear the lines. Well, you know, the thing is, 
I always liken the harpsichord compared to, say, an orchestra. It's like a, it's like a pencil sketch, and so that, that has its own expressivity, right? But um, this instrument, I kind of commissioned also to play modern music, but also because I think Bach does demand those big lines. You know, Bach is, the way he thinks his phraseology, that's a pretty pretentious term, but I mean, his, his architecture asks for, you know, pretty versatile instruments, I would say. And the idea that actually Bach needs perceived playing, when you look at even, well, the organs that he was playing with all the stops and the, the volume and the, the, the actual physical effort that was needed to play a lot of that music, it just seems sensible, seems, seems logical that you should bring out something big. I think so. I think there's a balance to be found, you know, always. Um, I mean, we're not going to go back to the way people played Bach in the 1940s or 50s. You know, we have to be ourselves. But also this idea that we're creating, recreating something two, three hundred years ago, well, that's just not defensible philosophically. But hey, that's a big subject. Yeah, and we're standing here in microphones in the Royal Crescent. That's Bath, right. I mean, you know. talk, talk about authenticity. Well, this yeah. is the thing. I mean, you know, this is heavy set stuff. This is 30 terrace houses built around 1756, 1760. Yeah, that's that right. So Handel would have missed it. But Haydn, I think there's even a... a description by Haydn of coming to the Royal Crescent. He described Bath as the most beautiful city in Europe. And we have one of his very few religious remarks where he says, um, it is so beautiful, this country, and the people are so wonderful. What a shame that they're not of my religion. It's the one time he sort of criticizes that Britain is Protestant, which is very strange. But he came to Bath, I believe, once or twice. He was greatly admired in Bath. Of course, Bath was uh, then, as now, a, quite a chic town yeah, and people yeah. brought in uh, the best. There's a danger it can be treated like a museum. We talk about Haydn saying it was the most beautiful place in Europe, but is it too much of a museum? I you don't know. know. I mean, I it's, mean like, it's like music, isn't it? Can could music, have been a museum in its own can, time. Can, can Bach be treated too much of as a museum, can that music be put in too much of a You know, it's not, we're not going to get a, a sense of how these people thought, or, I mean, I always quip, do you like period toilets, right? I mean, if you really had to live the way people <laughs> did, you know, you would, it would, it would be tough. But I mean, at the same time, you know, you have to understand, I mean, a lot of the, the building and the neoclassical building that was going on in Britain, it is meant to evoke and comment on a sort of idealized idea of life and an idealized idea of aesthetics. So the city is, I don't want to say it's built as a museum, but it's built as an idea. Mm. Bath is very much an idea. Mm. And, um, you know, so that, that uh, if you like that, that gray area, that indefinable space between ideal and reality. I mean, I would also say that it's a city that it clearly has adapted itself to the modern age. You can live in it, can't you? And of course, we were just saying before we started recording that Bath was not a very nice place. You can, in live, in that, you can 50s, live in some you know? areas. I mean, there's still the division, isn't there? You know, the, the, the sort of the people who can live in the most beautiful oh, places yeah, do sure. the most beautiful places. I mean, you know. But so. it was like that back then. Yeah, you know, very true, it's, very true. It's ever changed. Very but. true. Oh, I, I'm really fascinated by the first piece of classical music you ever fell in love with, really. I, I think it's the That's one that sets us, on a, sets us on a road to where we're going. I mean, maybe it doesn't with you, I don't know. Your tastes always seem quite well, I can eclectic. tell you what the tune was. Yeah. Chike 4, Tchaikovsky yeah. 4. It's that first movement. It is the first yes. movement. It's the first piece of music. I, I broke the cassette. Remember cassette tapes? I broke the cassette tape yeah. listening to that.
I had Karen when I was in yeah. high school. I think the cassette we had was, uh, I must have been a recording that I got later on, which is Kondrashen, uh, Leningrad. Okay. Okay. I think it's Leningrad Symphony. Yeah, Kirill Kondrashen. Amazing. Amazing. Which is DG. Yeah. yeah. And also those, I mean, that, uh, that Leningrad fill, that oboe section. Oh, my God. It's, it's like... It's like ducks from hell. Yeah. Yeah. I will never forget listening to that recording. And I no. think I have it on my iTunes now. So, I mean, I have to say that second movement is, I think, one of the most beautiful written in, in, in the 19th century. I mean, he is truly a European composer, Tchaikovsky. You know, he's not a... It's funny because he gets a kind of bad rap from Taruskin and the whole idea of what is ra- Russian nationalism in music. But, you know, what the Russians wanted to do was to be cosmopolitans in music. But, but you ask any Russian, uh, you know, Tchaikovsky is a deeply Russian... Composer, there's this concept in Russian called Tuska. I'm very interested in Russian literature, so I'm always reading about this stuff. And Tuska is this kind of indefinable, inexorable melancholy that exists in Tchaikovsky. You know, even when he smiles, he's sad. Yeah. I, 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 he's always accompanied me in my life, Tchaikovsky, in a way that only maybe Bach has. Yeah, I, I find myself gravitating towards music like that most of the time. Music that sort of makes you, I don't know, cathartic is, is a too simplistic way to think about it, maybe, but a sense that the music's following you in your life. Well, you might say that the Slavic... You, comforting you. The Slavic view of life, I mean, I live in the Czech Republic and they have this, is that life and art are inextricable from one another. Life and life is art. I mean, uh, maybe it's harsh to say this, but we're in a city which historically in the 18th century uh, bought its culture. Yeah. But to Slavs, even if you don't have anything, culture is culture. Yeah. And... Uh, um, that's what I feel very deeply with Tchaikovsky. Maybe I also have a wistful attraction to it because as a harpsichordist, I'll never be able to play any Tchaikovsky, right? I can't transcribe. It's not going to work. So great. I get to sit and listen to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there is a sense that sort of music uh, has been brought into modern day living, you know, back in the day. I mean, returning to Bach, Bach was the name for musician that was interchangeable. Music was just what everyone did. Music was just part of sort of everyday living. Whereas now it's slotted into lunchtime, it's slotted into evenings. It's kind of, it's, it's your bread and butter, but still music is still something that's... That's treated as a, as a commodity rather than... Yeah, like well, because a, we have access, we can just turn on something in our phones and listen to music. I mean, other people, you know, people have talked about this at length, but you know, when Bach went to hear Hasse's Cleofide in 1731, when he went to hear Telemann conducting uh, Handel's Ariodante, which was translated into German in 1735 in Hamburg, Bach would have heard it once. That's it. It's not, you know, he couldn't go on his sound system and listen to Hassa again. The way Bach processed music would have been largely through scores, but also clearly uh, an ear of great uh, discernment and um, one that would have picked up things, but how many chances would he have had necessarily to hear a piece of music? I mean, why does Mozart have, what is it, 26, 27 piano concertos? Last one is B-flat 27, yeah. Um, because there are 27 different concerts. And you hear them once. Mozart played them once. Um, you know, the other uh, recorded instance we have of someone playing the famous D minor, K466 of Mozart, is, uh, is Beethoven playing it on a tour. Beethoven playing is play, plays it somewhere like Frankfurt or something. So in Mozart's time, he plays it once. And, and so in that sense, I say, well, one can lament that, one can bemoan that, but also we will never understand how they thought. We will never, in a sense, that preciousness of music for them is something that... Mm, I have to say we can strive towards, but we will never we will never know what that feels like. And, and, just, as, just as much today, a performance is fleeting, so the music itself is fleeting. So tell me, what what's the best classical music concert you've ever oh, been man. to? I wonder if I have so much Tchaikovsky on my mind. Uh, 
Oh, okay. So it wasn't, it was like, was it a concert? I wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, Should we walk so, it? Yeah, way? yeah. Let's yeah, walk in. Look, look at the Royal Crescent. I mean, I'm looking at you, but I really want to look at the Royal Crescent, you know, to be honest. Yeah, no, I was at um, Edinburgh Festival last year, 2019. And um, one of my close friends, she, uh, she works for Edinburgh Festival in the summer. She's actually a dramaturge and, and programmer at Barbican. And she, um, I was up in Edinburgh Festival for some concerts. And she said, hey, you know, you have a free day between two of your concerts. Why don't you come? Komische Oper from Berlin is bringing Barry Kosky's production of um, Yevgeny Onegin, again, Tchaikovsky. And, you know, they've got to do a closed dress rehearsal the night before in the festival theater, a kind of technical rehearsal. Why don't you come along? Mm. And I will, I will never forget being, she snuck me in. I was the only person in the Edinburgh Festival Theater that night. Ready? And they did all of Evgeny Onegin with Azmi Gregorian as Tatiana, who's amazing. And I just remember sitting there in the balcony, being alone. The curtains opened, and three hours later, the curtains closed. And I thought, what the heck just happened? I felt like it was a performance for me only. Yeah. And I... There's magic in shared experience, but there's also <sighs> magic in sort of music just being projected in your direction. Yes. And also they weren't really performing for an audience. They were performing just to be great. They were performing for themselves. And, they, and no one marked. That was amazing. Like Russian singers don't mark, man. They really, they did it full. They full out. In the third act, there was rain, real rain on stage. During the letter scene, I remember Azmi Gregorian just beating her chest and going crazy. And I thought, I thought I will never, I will never experience anything like this. And soon after, afterwards, I bought, I bought a new translation that Pushkin Press has done of Yevgeny Onyegin. Um, unfortunately, I can't, I can't understand the Russian. And my, in my mind, the whole time I read it over holiday, I just thought of that production. I, I'll, that's where you say, you know, again, that 18th century, 17th century experience of hearing something once. Yeah. It will always stick with me that I had that experience. And that sort of private music making for yourself is, is just so important. Even if the artists were concentrating on it being a dress rehearsal, you know, it was still, as you say, something that they wanted to do for them. They didn't necessarily know you were there. So I'm, you know, I'm just sort of wondering, how much do you play for yourself as opposed to practice? Because you have to spend a lot of time preparing new repertoire, but how often do you manage to sit down and just go, you know what, I'm going to really relish this for me? The issue of working for yourself is a very interesting topic. I mean, um, I think I learned... We are entertainers, right? We are playing for others. The idea that people are just kind of witnessing us practicing is, I think, slightly pretentious, and I think it's a bit nonsensical. I think we are there for others. Um, performers who have contempt for their public, I've never understood. You get some performers who get up there, and either they lecture the audience, which I just cannot be bothered with that, or they just, they just want to show how smart they are, you know, make the audience feel stupid. I think we are there for the audience because I want you, as a listener to feel what I'm feeling, to, to know why I want to spend my time with this music. Having said that, however, 
Yeah, you do learn to play for yourself in the sense that you learn to be yourself. You know, you learn to trust yourself. And that, that actually has only come for me maybe in the last year. Something about, something about hitting 35 and you're like, okay, I'm at a time of my life. Like I'm older than Schubert was when he did everything. I'm older than Mozart was. Yeah, and, sigh of relief, you know. Yeah, sigh of relief. <laughs> like, okay, just kind of step down Purcell hill from tick, here. Mozart yeah, tick, Mozart tick, Schubert tick. Yeah, like, uh, you know, Pergolesi, whatever. Um, Janis Joplin, you know, like, uh, you know, Amy Winehouse. And you think, okay. You accept things for the way they are, but also, I don't know, there's this thing about believing, believing that you, you have something to say without shouting it. So I want to know what your current musical obsession or obsessions are. Yeah, uh, I've been listening to Josef Tal, who's an Israeli composer, 1950s, 1960s, uh, avant-garde, did the first stuff with electronics, actually, uh, in Israel, wrote a big work for harpsichord and electronics, which I'm going to start learning soon. So I've been getting to know his other music and he wrote these great symphonies and I've been kind of, yeah, kind of grooving to his second symphony lately. Um, so what, uh, are they, what are they like? Are they with electronics as well or were they... No, no, it's all, uh, I suppose you would call it acoustic. Um, the thing with uh, a lot of Israeli music, there's Chaim Alexander, there's Paul Benheim, there's, there's Joseph Tal, uh, is that these are fundamentally European composers, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all born in Europe. They're born in Poland or Germany or Lithuania or whatever. And so they're kind of, they're continuing the tradition of European art music and the trends that go on there. I mean, a lot of it sounds like Shostakovich and Weinberg and, okay. yeah. and things like that. But yeah. also, uh, you know, they are forging sort of national identity in music. And, they, and, and, and guys like Chaim Alexander, they look a lot into Middle Eastern music. Actually, right. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm fascinated by that, by that period of composers and tall, tall. There's oh gosh, there's Habenshtak Ramati. You know any of his music? No. Amazing. Habenshtak Ramati did all this stuff with um, concrete notation, which I really find fascinating. What, what, what's concrete notation? Uh, you know, um, non-traditional visual notation. Okay. Uh, kind so of more like, sort of pictorial scores where you're scores, you know, directing like, physical sort of elements rather than pictures. Yes, but in the case, I mean, like Cornelius Cardew did that sort of thing. Yeah. And Cardew, you know, he's very ambiguous about whether these are specific markings or not. It's not just a matter of interpretation. He claims that it's specific, but I don't know. I mean, what, what Cardew says and what he means are, is very difficult to so figure out. But. Is there a bit of towel we should go away and listen to? Second Symphony. piece of music could you absolutely not live without oh, man. so you know this is a really hard ask you know one piece of music ah this is going to be super controversial because everyone's going to be everyone wants to make some well we all think you're going to say bark don't we yeah everyone's going to like oh yeah. because from heaven because he's a harpsichordist yeah the passion the math, matthew passion and blah 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 <laughs> yeah. and virtue signaling no i'll be honest with you uh elgar for symphony I'm all about that symphony, especially the last, like the, like the last minute or last two minutes of that symphony. Yeah. Just fascinate the heck out of me. I remember the first time I went to hear it, it was part of a concert where I, oh, you know what? Martin Brabens was conducting the Philharmonia 
And he and I had done some stuff before, so I went to, to see him, and I sat, and he got me a ticket, and, he, and I sat with his wife. And he gave us a copy of the score, and he said, hey, by the way, note in the last movement, when the theme comes up from the back of the first violins. Yeah. So I'm sitting there with his wife, listening to this, following the score, totally marveling at the symphony. And then that, that section comes, and uh, that is an unforgettable moment. Perhaps it'll always be identified for me with like being a friend, you know, of the conductor and and I was in a nice environment with people I liked and and so this symphony I I, I really I can't get enough of it. When that symphony was performed, we all kind of assumed that these these symphonies weren't appreciated back then, and we're only really starting to realise their greatness. But you know, people were saying Elgar is the greatest composer, not only in the UK but the greatest living in composer in yes. in Europe, in That's the world. Right. You know, people realised that Elgar was the most important musical figure of yeah. his time. I think it was Hans Richter, or it was Hermann Levy, or someone who yeah. wrote wrote a colleague in London and said, "Do you know in England?" that you have the greatest composer and his name is Elgar. Mm. It's, it's amazing to think, I always look back on that Ken Russell film about Elgar, that people in England didn't know. They didn't know. Elgar was, a tr- again, to use that term, he was a European composer and people didn't know how great he was. Um, yeah, I really can't get enough of that piece. If you're enjoying the music so far, do head to this episode's Spotify playlist where you can find complete performances of all the pieces discussed, as well as some bonus tracks. You'll find the link in the podcast description. But I think Elgar is one of those composers who is equally brilliant in the miniature music as he is in the, in the chamber music as he is in the, in, in, in the grand, grand sweeping statements. You know, we tend to think of Elgar as this great, well, some people do, as this, this sort of great uh, nationalistic figure. She's not. But he's not. He, he was he a depressive, that, depre- depressive private man. You know, he was a very, in many ways, a very lonely, very sensitive individual. He's also a perpetual outsider yeah. in British society. Yeah. Uh, another outsider who doesn't even get the kind of establishment respect in England would be Malcolm Arnold. Yes, and I uh, very much pre- lately I'm really appreciating his symphonic works. Mm. Um, there's that there was that series on EMI where I think there's a recording of him conducting his fifth symphony, and but th- he's someone who, I mean, yes, he was Sir Malcolm Arnold, but he he's never been taken seriously as the serious composer that he should be. There's a there's a rumor, and whether it's true, probably an urban myth, that uh, when uh, Malcolm Williamson was made master of the oh. Queen's music, that actually they chose the wrong Malcolm and I... the people making the decision were the people in Whitehall and uh, yeah Malcolm Arnold should have been the man uh... and I can, I can sort of believe that because I think he was overlooked I think his, his music those symphonies are incredible certainly I feel that Malcolm Arnold frequently makes me reflect on life 
to think, not that you're suggesting this, but to think that this is somehow popular or populist or Team GB music totally misses the point. And I think a lot of people do think that. They do think it's not serious music. People remember him from, what was the name of that piece? Pat Stowe Lifeboat. And that stuff is yeah. fun, right? But that's not easy to write, first of all. No. Secondly, you listen to the Fifth Symphony, especially the third, fourth movements where it's a, it's a, it's a hymn to his friends who fall, fell in the war. You know, that there's this indescribable pain that he clearly, the guy drank himself to death, essentially, didn't he? He, he? he drank because he couldn't, he was of a generation that couldn't talk about that. to know what your is there some sort of a film you've been to see recently or a book you're reading that you would recommend to us so i read a lot i try to read a book a week so um a book I've a week been, that's that's, that's yeah, impressive but well hey man when you're traveling a lot there's not a lot to do but read um and let me tell you something when you do long-haul flights actually to limit your exposure to media is a good thing it really messes with your head so well, what curry menus are they because you collect curry yeah, menus don't i you? do collect curry <laughs> menus that's right as as you learned last night when I requested a takeaway menu. That's right. I do collect curry menus. It's a hobby. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I um, lately have been reading a lot of Japanese fiction. Um, a lot of Soseki and Tanizaki, Murakami, um, writers like that. Partly because, uh, I'm not sure I should admit this, um, I don't feel a massive sympathy with Japan. Like when I go there, I don't feel good. Um in what it, sense? Mm, I find it very doctrinaire, very reserved. So I started reading a lot of Japanese fiction because I was like, this isn't right. You know, why is it that I, I, don't, I don't really jive with Japan? So I thought, I, so I was at, um, I go to an English bookseller in Prague and yeah. uh, I order a lot of books. So I said, hey, order me like 10 Japanese novels and let's do this. Let's, let's figure this out. So I'm on my third one right now. It's called Sanshiro. Yeah. by Soseki, um, who was a Japanese writer in the 19-teens, 1920s, 1930s. And uh, it's a coming-of-age novel. It's about a young man who goes from Kyushu to Tokyo and goes to university. And I very highly recommend that. And, I, and then I just finished um, Soseki's uh, magnum opus, which is a book called The Makioka Sisters, which is about a sort of chic family from Osaka and... Their um, kind of decline, yeah. Like, as a family, I quite, yeah. and I quite like both of those books. And, and I suppose reading Japanese, you know, culture that's so different from the stuff you're playing, it really separates out your leisure and your work. Well, is that it's right? An I mean, is that question? You know? I mean, you might say that a great deal of 18th century, 17th century music is produced in cultures where one does not say what they mean. Uh, so it's not that different. Mm-hmm. You know. So I think I'm going to head to the station. I don't know about you. Where are you yeah, going? Yeah, I got to go to Birmingham. I got a recital at Town Hall tomorrow. Town Hall. That's um, a great venue. Yeah, I'm playing McConkey. Fantastic. I'm playing some Freedom on Bach. I'm playing some Gibbons. Yeah. Um, yeah. So should be fun. Forward. I got to practice. Solo? Yes, solo recital at, at, at Town Hall in the round. Well, best of luck with so, it. Thank you. And it's great to see you. Looking for you. Yeah, good to see you, man. See you, see you soon. Another curry. Yes, many curries. <laughs>
That was harpsichordist Mahanis Fahani there on his musical loves. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Let us know what you think by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and in various digital formats, or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews, and a good deal more. Thank you to Acast for hosting this podcast, and to our producers, Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman.